I'm Stephanie Lemick, and this is Building Trauma-Informed Workplaces. Welcome to part two of our season one highlights episodes. This will be highlights from the second half of our first season of the Building Trauma-Informed Workplaces podcast. So, so excited to highlight some of the amazing conversations we had. And again, a thank you to all of our amazing listeners as we wrap up our very first season. So let's jump in and get started with our highlights. In episode eight, we talked about the principle of trauma-informed workplaces collaboration. Here are some highlights from that episode. So when we think about how structure works against collaboration, or how structures play a role in effective collaboration, the thing that most frequently comes up or the thing I most frequently think about is power imbalance and how power imbalances are inherent to the traditional organizational design that most organizations follow, that traditional hierarchical structure. And those power dynamics get out of whack or out of balance in those designs and can really hinder effective collaboration. People who have had a history of trauma, likely they experience some imbalance of power in that moment, in that traumatic experience. So addressing these power dynamics at work are really important when we think about avoiding any triggering behavior of past traumas. And we also want to make sure that we're not creating new trauma with those power imbalances, even when they're unintentional. One of the things we want to talk about as we look at power imbalances is power dynamics and positional power. And if anyone has ever heard me talk about positional power before, you know this is a hot button of mine. For folks to understand positional power and to attempt to understand your own positional power, which is a significant challenge that many of us face when we think about our role in the workplace. And, you know, I have a longstanding belief that the root of a lot of issues, a lot of issues where someone is harmed um, or harmed unintentionally, rather, is a deep misunderstanding of positional power. And positional power absolutely comes into play as it relates to an organizational structure. And it's it's a little easier to understand when we talk about an organizational structure because it's a little bit more visually evident because it's, you know, a typical org chart kind of helps guide or understand positional power. But as we exist in the world, there's also positional power that impacts us. And we can really understand positional power a little bit better beyond the workplace. And I would say even in the workplace as well, as we think about the different aspects of privilege. A lot of times, managers moving from that peer to manager role aren't given enough support, training, resources to really feel and understand and gain some more awareness around that shift as well. So it's a little bit like you have these blinders on. You think, oh, I've worked with Sally for years. We have a great relationship. And then all of a sudden that relationship changes. And neither you or Sally have really done anything. It's about that shift in power dynamic. The more senior you get, the more power you have the less likely you are to kind of understand 
how you come across in interactions with others on the team. You're also typically much less likely to get honest, candid feedback, especially that tough, honest, candid feedback. And so it just kind of compounds that misunderstanding of your positional power, how you're coming across can kind of snowball. And, you know, what starts out as, you know, a teeny tiny little, you know, quarter size misperception of yourself. As you advance, as you gain more power, as you continue to get less feedback, can become, you know, a mountain. Our next episode featured an amazing guest and a dear friend of mine, Maud Moreno, talking more about her experience as an IT professional turned wellness entrepreneur. Here are some highlights from the conversation with Maud. We're always like in this mode of chasing something down or feeling like we failed because we could not catch up on that 12 things that we wanted to do that we couldn't do. And people don't realize this level of stress really is killing us literally, scientifically, statistically, killing us slowly. We may not realize it. And at some point in our lives, our body is going to say, stop it, Stephanie. You can no longer do this. Time out. Time for you to take a break. Time for you to prioritize yourselves. And kudos to those people who feel like they're invincible and healthy. They may be right. But I have a family history. Eventually, now I have this condition. I have to tell people, this is not to scare you. In fact, this is to empower you. Yes. To turn something around, change a little bit of habit. Maybe you move before you work. Maybe you practice mindfulness before you work. Maybe you take a break every 12, 10 and just make it 10 minutes and then eat by yourself. Eat without the computer so you can go back to work refreshed. You know, there are these little things and tweaks that we can do. I have facilitated team charter creation in my life as a BA that was kind of part of something that I would be an advocate of. And I also kind of coach some people on how to put together a team charter. That's where you self-identify as a team. What do you deliver, who you are, what your values are, what your non-negotiables are. And if even one person put wellness as their value, well-being, mental health, um, whatever other, you know, beliefs or whatever values that they have, and they put it in the forefront it's up for discussion and it's it's become a visible topic. And so I told, told them, don't hide in your misery. T- say it. I am someone who feels X because of Y, so let's do Z, right? Write that, make that sort of your template so that you can express what it is you're feeling, why you're feeling that way, and what steps forward there could be. And I talk about that. Like I even have this little prism that I show, like, what do you normalize? Normalize taking a break. Normalize blocking off your calendar. Normalize being accountable for each other. Normalize having an accountability partner. Um, Gosh, there's so many things that I talked about there. And every time I mention this, people are like nodding, but I also, I also know they're secretly on their sort of periphery in their third eye thinking, holy shit, is this going to happen for my team? Am I going to be that person for my team? It's one of those things where it can be so hard to Mm -hmm. speak out. But I love kind of going back to what you said earlier in the podcast. It only takes one person. 
it only takes one person to raise the point, to say the hard thing, to kind of change the energy. And a lot of times, especially when it's something like meetings that never stop or needing to be able to take a break or prioritizing our health and wellness, once you say something and raise your hand, everyone else is like, yeah, can we do that now too? It's so, so important to empower folks to raise their hand, to make those changes, to do those things and leveraging your work to pull that through a culture, trauma-informed principles to pull that through a culture can be really powerful and impactful when it comes to changing our experiences of the workplace. Exactly. The people who will resist you the first, second, or third time are going to be the biggest embracers after that. Because why wouldn't you want a space and a break in your day that will only help you work better, right? It's almost like, flip the script. Why don't we run ourselves to the ground? Why don't we just skip lunch? Why don't we just have meetings back to back? Why don't we just end the workday at seven o'clock at night? Like imagine flipping the script and somebody just sort of taking the reins and asking the difficult question. And you know, you're doing the right thing because you're doing the hard thing. So just ask it, just plant that seed, make people react keep doing it, whether it's wellness, whether it's the change of meeting lengths or whatever uniform in the office, whatever aspect of your workday that is really kind of burdening you and you just know a little bit of change can make people's lives better, ask it and just say it. Every If yoga was just easy peasy, every single person would be doing yoga. But no, yoga taps into your truth, the hard truth right? Things that you hide, things that don't come out there in the world comes out in your mat and how you move and how you breathe. So it's sort of that same test of humanity that shows up in a yoga mat or a chair yoga at work. It really is all kind of a test and you just have to believe in your own power to make a change one person at a time. Yeah. The equation for ROI on wellness programs is actually pretty straightforward. Okay, there's a few variables in this equation. It starts with productivity increases, plus talent management savings, plus healthcare savings, minus the wellness program cost. That is the ROI for wellness programs in your organization. In our next episode, we talked about one of the most important principles of trauma-informed workplaces empowerment. Here's some more information about empowerment as a principle of trauma-informed workplaces from that podcast episode. At the core of traumatic experiences is a feeling of powerlessness, a lack of control and choice over what is happening to you or around you. And this feeling of helplessness can lead to lasting impacts on an individual's sense of self and power over their own lives. Because a feeling of lack of control or helplessness is so tied to trauma, empowerment is one of the most important principles for creating a trauma-informed workplace culture. Empowerment in the context of trauma-informed workplace cultures is about more than just choice. It's also about environments where individuals feel valued and that they are making meaningful contributions. 
For that reason, when we look at the concept of empowerment in trauma-informed cultures, we want to look at four distinct parts. Choice, strengths leveraged, recognition, and growth. I like to say that empowerment and ownership are a cousins. And when someone is looking for folks on their team to take more ownership, one of the best tools you can leverage is empowerment. And I also love that empowerment is one of the most important principles of trauma-informed workplaces to go along with that. So when we look at choice as a principle of empowerment or an aspect of empowerment, which is a, our principle overall here, we want to think about how we can find ways to create choice for our team members or create choice on our teams. Think about and ask yourself the question, how can you create choice for your team here? Like, Seriously, it really can be that simple. It can be really easy to misconstrue conversations around creating choice or empowerment at work to a, you know, idea of letting your team kind of have carte blanche, letting them do whatever they want. That's, that's not the goal. Choice is amazing. Choice is powerful. We want to provide opportunities for folks to have choice over how and when they do their work, what work they're doing. The next aspect of empowerment I want to talk about is making sure strengths are leveraged. And as a Gallup certified Clifton Strengths coach, you know this is something I am super passionate about. Utilizing your strengths on a daily basis fosters a sense of self efficacy, empowerment, and overall well being. So a strengths-based approach focuses on building resilience by identifying and leveraging individuals' existing strengths and resources, skills, knowledge, abilities. And according to the APA or American Psychological Association, resilience plays a crucial role in recovering from trauma and involves utilizing personal strengths to adapt and thrive in the face of adversity. So when we engage in activities that align with one's strengths, it can increase positive emotions, sense of... Next, we want to take a look at the third component of empowerment, recognition. In the context of trauma-informed workplaces, recognition refers to the practice of acknowledging and appreciating efforts, achievements, and contributions within the organization or within your team. It involves acknowledging others' hard work, dedication, and performance to reinforce positive behaviors, cultural values, and to motivate. When we think about recognition as it relates to empowerment, recognition validates the value an individual brings to the group. So when individuals receive acknowledgement or appreciation for their strengths, their progress, their contribution to the team, the mission, the goal, it boosts their self-esteem, self-worth, and belief in their ability to overcome challenges. I want to say that again, belief in their ability to overcome challenges. So what you may be picking up on is empowerment is kind of the resilience principle. Resilience is a skill. Resilience has to be built. Um, and that's a building resilience is tough because you have to go through challenges, but you have to go through challenges in a way where you have the space, the tools, the resources to overcome challenges. The last aspect we'll talk about as it relates to empowerment as a principle of trauma-informed workplace cultures is growth. 
you're probably not super surprised to hear we want to talk about growth as it relates to the workplace. What's important to point out, though, is growth means different things to different people. But growth is all important. According to a 2022 Microsoft Work Trend Index, 76% of employees say they'd stay at their company longer if they could benefit from more learning and development support. People want to grow and continue to expand their skill sets, their knowledge, their abilities. It's important to talk, though, when we talk about growth at work, when we talk about development, people often jump to the conclusion that people are talking about getting promoted or advancing in their career. Absolutely, that counts. But that is not the only way individuals can grow and that you can support individual growth in the workplace. So I think it's really important that, of course, promotions, kind of climbing that career ladder or career jungle gym, however you want to think about it, is absolutely part of growth as it relates to empowerment, but it's also more than that. And I think this is what's really important and key here is a lot of organizations have learning and development, growth programs, growth initiatives, and they're often very focused on high potentials, you know, newer employees, people who they want to grow and build into that next level or have them on track for promotion. That's great work. That's important work for a variety of reasons, including supporting growth as a trauma-informed workplace. However, we can't overlook everyone else. Everyone else has to have an opportunity to continue to learn and grow. That may be enrolled, that may be in a different role at a similar level, or maybe an opportunity to grow and learn just from an enrichment standpoint or grow and learn outside of the workplace. The idea is really to focus on how fostering growth can acknowledge potential for post-traumatic growth. It can focus on how we all can continue to learn and grow and change throughout our lives and evolve through positive psychological changes. And this can include increased personal strength, a deeper sense of purpose, enhanced relationships. It's so important for us to receive that feedback and that opportunity in the workplace to see that we have potential, that we are able to continue to learn and grow and evolve as humans. Next, we have a special holiday-themed episode where we talked more about handling holiday and end-of-year stress. Here are some great highlights from the episode, including how to set and uphold boundaries. Just like individual experiences of trauma, how each of us experiences this time of year is unique, which is important to keep in mind. For some, the holidays are truly magical, and for others, they may feel like a series of proverbial landmines. Understanding and honoring the wide range of emotions that can be tied to the season is important in supporting others and supporting ourselves as well. How can we tackle the challenges we face this holiday season? Whether you're looking to manage your stress and avoid burnout, or you're actively strategizing to prevent being triggered, there are tools we can absolutely leverage to make this time of year better. First, and probably my favorite piece of advice year-round, honestly, is say no to make room for your hell yeses. 
In keeping with this strategy, you absolutely need to prioritize your self-care during the holiday season. You also got to make sure and be a little flexible with yourself. It's a tough time with schedules and energy. Don't beat yourself up if you fall off the horse. Just accept that and get back on when you can. Next up, let's talk about boundaries, both setting boundaries and respecting others' boundaries. Boundaries are going to be a great tool to leverage that will help you manage your time, energy, and emotions in both work and your personal life. Personal boundaries are limits or lines that are set to make relationships successful, free from manipulation and exploitation, and to protect our mental health. Boundaries define what is acceptable and unacceptable to us and what others can do to us or get from us. How can you create boundaries, especially as it relates to the holiday season? Start by reflecting on your reasons for your boundaries. Understand the why your boundaries are important to you and how they benefit you. And this is a really great place to start. Focus on clear, proactive communication with others. Make sure you're prepared to tactfully say no when things don't meet your expectations, your needs, your boundaries, and then make sure you're setting clear expectations with yourself and with others. Communication is going to be critical in the world of boundaries, especially if someone consistently oversteps them. Another important factor when it comes to boundaries is it's important to be consistent with your boundaries once you establish them. When it comes to respecting others' boundaries, the key, of course, is respect. Approach relationships with respect as a starting point. From there, make sure you're actively listening to the other party and also pay attention to those cues that may tell you something is off and ask if something is off. There is no harm ever in asking permission or if something is okay if you're feeling unsure about whether or not you're coming up against someone's boundary. Also, when it comes to others' boundaries, it's important to accept feedback and adjust if necessary. Boundary setting can be a really helpful tool in almost every aspect of our life. Our next episode featured another amazing guest. We're joined in this episode by Samreen McGregor, the author of Leader Awakened. Here are some highlights from the conversation. I've got a particular passion in helping people, leaders, but people generally, uh, to understand the the gift that adversity presents for us for learning about ourselves and about how to best navigate quite a challenging backdrop that that I think we find ourselves in. And, uh, you know, moments in history where backdrops haven't been challenging, but it certainly does feel fairly unprecedented. Certainly the access we have to information and connection with one another. And it's a bit paradoxical. We are more connected than ever, yet I think as humans, we are more disconnected than ever. So uh, yes, trauma-informed workplaces are are something really important to me. My experience would suggest that leaders do have a disproportionate impact on people, on culture, on organizational behavior, on society. And therefore, given I'm getting older and I've got kids and I've got a life that, that, you know, that I need to sort of balance things across. I, yeah, I want, I want to find the needle in the haystack and I want to, to really help, uh, you know, change some of these important conditions. My son 
um, had an unexpected illness. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor when he was nine years old. And I, back in my own professional context, was in a great place. I was building my business. I was really excited about the prospects. And and then this happened. And so there was a bit of a crossroads of what's the trajectory that I thought I was on and how am I going to, well, I guess in that early time, I, I didn't even ask myself the how, you just, you know, I, I I jumped into tigress mode and protected my my child, both my children actually, and um, and our family. And then a period of a couple of years went by. Thankfully, my son was, you know, he survived. He's been very healthy since, generally speaking. And um, and yes, we sort of got back on track, if that makes sense. And it's a very strange and simplistic way of putting it, but. Um, and then not long after that, the the pandemic hit. But coming back to your question, it was in the middle of all that, that mess uh, of me trying to piece myself back together again, um, mainly professionally and also sort of socially and just, just the, the, the sort of post-traumatic period. My consciousness was ripe with inspiration and a need and one need actually a few needs. One need was catharsis. It was a bit of, I have lost a lot. I hadn't quite realized how much. Um, I've also gained a lot and I've learned a lot and I've grown a lot. And a part of this process is for me, actually, I need to write it down and see if I can make sense of it and learn from it even more. And then there's a, I'd actually think quite a few people would find this quite an interesting journey to, to learn from. In this episode, we talk about the sixth principle of trauma-informed workplaces, humility and responsiveness. The old adage, hurt people, hurt people, comes to mind when we talk about this topic. Traumatic experiences are common, and the effects of trauma can appear in sometimes unexpected ways, including in ways that may harm others. It's important to remember that prior trauma is never an excuse to harm others. However, it's also worth noting that unaddressed trauma or environments that are not trauma-informed can exacerbate that potential harm. At a basic level, humility relates to the degree to which we value and promote our interest above others. In J.P. Tangi's Handbook of Positive Psychology, Six intrapersonal aspects of humility are identified that are helpful for understanding the concept of humility. They are a willingness to see ourselves truthfully, an accurate perception of our place in the world, an ability to acknowledge our mistakes and limitations, openness, low self-focus, and an appreciation of the value of all things. Our sixth principle isn't just about humility. In fact, humility alone isn't enough when it comes to kind of checking the box, so to speak, around the sixth principle of trauma-informed cultures. Without meaningful action and acknowledgement to correct harm, issues remain and often fester, getting worse and creating new issues, often impacting even more people. Responsiveness works hand-in-hand hand with humility 
to complete this trauma-informed principle for that reason. In our final regular episode of the podcast, we're joined by Dijanae Robinson, DEI expert and speaker, to tackle the final principle of trauma-informed workplaces. I love the call out for gut-wrenching conversations. I, I love transparency. I like being honest and upfront. And, you know, some of these conversations are really gut-wrenching. They're really hard. They're really challenging. And so often in the workplace, so often, you know, as a career HR professional, you hear or you even say growth happens in a place of discomfort. And we focus on that so much on an individual level, but it's also really true on an organization, on a team, on a societal level. So when we're not ready to have those really uncomfortable conversations, sometimes really beautiful conversations, sometimes really painful conversations, we're not ready to grow. And we have to be ready to grow because we have to be ready to be better as a society. A key aspect of trauma-informed cultures is an awareness around cultural, historical, and gender issues that interact with trauma, both at an individual and systemic level. Gender, cultural, and historical, or generational, experiences influence the experience and perception of trauma. Some examples include, but certainly are not limited to, women often facing higher rates of sexual assault and domestic violence, leading to trauma associated with those experiences, differing cultural perceptions and expectations on speaking about or addressing traumatic experiences, racially motivated violence such as hate crimes and police brutality, systemic racism, prejudice, and other acts of hate, historical trauma, resulting from collective experiences of racism, such as intergenerational trauma passed down through generations, including slavery, colonization, genocide, and forced displacement. And as far as diversity, equity, inclusion within the workplace, within the world, within your home, the intercultural piece, depending on the environment that you're in, it can look differently. It can be structured differently. The policies, the procedures, um, the employee support, it has to be structured based off of the internal need. Who do we need to hear from to ensure if that, those differences, those nuances are actually effective? The employees, those who are impacted by the day-to-day experiences in person and virtually with this new way of living on the macro scale. But it's only through shared experiences, conversations that we understand that, you know what, from a equitable standpoint, we have to make sure we can support our employees in that way. I hope you enjoyed all of these highlights and had as much fun as I did reflecting on the first season of the podcast. As a reminder, you can go back and listen to any of these full conversations at your leisure and Make sure and hit subscribe if you aren't already so you can see us in the new year as we begin season two at the beginning of February. I'm Stephanie Lemick.
Until next time, be well and Happy New Year.